Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor Is Rising. With us is a special guest today. He's an independent art consultant and gallerist from France, Christian Augier. Uh, welcome, Christian, to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be with you, indeed. Thank you. Um, Christian, first, why don't you give us, I guess, your story and your, and your background of, of how you sort of came into the art world slash business? I've been in this world for more than 40 years. But I must stress that I started very early too, which uh, means that I'm not completely uh, very, very old. Um, (laughs) Yes, I was a diplomat for a brief stint in the French diplomatic service. And I started collecting. And collecting brought me uh, in contact with the artists, with the gallerists. And I thought, oh, this is a nice, nice job. My job is... Far from realities, you know, it's uh, being a diplomat is far from somehow the everyday world. It's far from action. It's a lot of talks, but a little action. Uh, here, I would be close to creation, close to artists, close to the world as it is being made. And this brought me to quit uh, the diplomat service and start as an art dealer. And that was over 40 years ago. Can you take us through how an artist would get discovered in the sort of contemporary art, traditional art scene, and what that process actually sort of looks like? That was formerly a very long process, which took many validations from many actors. This whole process, which was a decade-long process, when you think of Van Gogh, Van Gogh was in a very close to the core of the art market in his days through his brother Theo. And nonetheless, during his 10 years career, uh, active career as a painter, he didn't reach to, uh, to the, for the recognition which he now got and has, got, uh, for a, has gotten for a long time. Uh, So it was a very long process, 10, 20 years process, which has been shortened to, in in some cases, six months, as we have seen lately with some very, very new, very, very young, very, very trendy hot artists on on the art market. And of course, this is somehow a plus for this young artist to be recognized very quickly, but it's also very dangerous and I would say not very accurate probably because this 10, 20 years recognition process allowed for, you know, trials and errors. It allowed for, for time to assess the, the, the strength and the quality of the works. Uh, here it's an artist has a good idea, and in six months, he's, uh, he's a king, he's a star. He's, uh, and this is, uh, well, very impressive, but probably a little bit uh, overdone. 
in the NFT space, you know, a lot of what happens because it's so new and, um, you know, there's very little agreement on <laughs> what makes an artist a good artist, like in the NFT space, there's very little agreement, right? Everyone has their own opinions on this. So essentially the only sort of objective measure is the resale price <laughs> of an artist's <laughs> works, right? And so if an artist's work sells for a lot, well, he's uh, objectively better. Is that what, what you're seeing in the traditional art market, that the price drives recognition rather than the sort of other way around? Well, there are two things. There are two, uh, two art markets. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of blue chip art market, and then there is the newer, newer art. Mm -hmm. In blue chips, let's say Picasso or, or Monet, uh, to, name, or, to name a few, the, the, the market is very wide and distributed among many different actors all of them playing a role. And so it truly functions as a, a real market marketplace. Not that it's perfect, but at least there is um, a kind of, how shall I say, predictability, stability, logic. Logic mm. is actually the word which would, uh, would be important to stress. There's a kind of logic into, into that. In the newer art, it is very much similar to what you describe of the NFTs, in the sense that everyone, every single person I meet has his preferred artists and discoveries and uh, protégé, uh, in, in, we, we say in French, which is uh, the one, um, the, the, the horses you have bet on and you, which you, you want to see uh, win. And so for that reason, there is no clear um, agreement on what is major and what is not. And we come to the same situation as in the NFTs. The only reference is price. And it's uh, on top of this, it's a, quite an easy uh, reference to manipulate. The quality is hard to discuss and hard to uh, quantify. Price is very easy. And a few auction records, and you, you have um, you have references. One of the questions that's kind of utmost in my mind is: Were the artists that were initially identified as kind of the the the, the sort of the OGs, the ones who sort of blew up initially, did they last, or did some of them actually fade? Because this is, I think, a question that's actually happening right now because. There's a lot of artists who basically have a big reputation because they essentially were forefront of crypto slash NFT art, right? In 2018, 2019, they were there before anyone else got there, right? They were they were selling yes. things that were curios and 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 now you know their prices have you know 100x, a thousand x, and you know anything they make is just snatched up because. I mean, I don't think a lot of collectors actually understand what they're buying. They just know that the name is kind of a brand name because. You know, they, they were there early and their prices fetched very high. I'm just wondering, like, from your guys' experience, you know, were those sort of initial sort of brand name artists who sort of emerged initially, did their names last or did they fade? Or, or is that dependent on what those artists continue to do? Let's take big innovation, which took place 100 years ago with, let's say, cubism and fauvism and cubism. 
And indeed, Picasso la lasted until now, and you know how how much he represents. And he represented even then. He was really he burst out from the very beginning and lasted until the until until the very last moment and further, as mm -hmm. we can see. But next to him were a lot of very good artists, which are far less known than uh, he is. And I would think very simply of Braque. Braque, uh, Georges Braque, who was brought Cubism to birth along with Picasso, is not any longer a very well-known name. Most of his work uh, has been forgotten and he vowed it still commands respectable prices. It's no way near a Picasso. So it tells you that, um, you know, there were two major artists inventing something and one went on to be uh, to be the the star and the other one who for a long time was esteemed and respected is now a bit less um, known and appreciated and one of the reasons indeed was that Picasso went on and on and on with creation with renewal and with uh, you know, producing new, uh, I mean, new waves, new styles during uh, the, ne the next 60 years of his career, while Braque kept on producing a fairly good and um, established style of Cubist painting, which evolved a little bit over time, but to some extent was far less cutting edge than uh, Picasso um, re managed to remain all his life. And this is the difference which I see now between uh, Picasso, the, 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 the cutting edge and the creator, and Braque, a remarkable artist, but who somehow kept on his trades, worked on his trades for a very long time, but never went to new avenues or explore new things as Picasso did every five to 10 years. Would you say that like in Picasso's time, uh, you know, contemporaries, was he always regarded as kind of the top artist, like compared to say Brax or, or other contemporaries? Or do you say, would you say that his reputation only happened after, like at the time, maybe other artists were sort of considered better or selling higher than what he was or, and that only only upon reflection was he clearly considered like held in a higher sort of regard. Picasso was always in the, the top league, always from the very beginning, from from age twenty, he broke uh, broke out from the crowds, and he was always considered top. Uh, the the breakaway um, artist. What is interesting is that to some extent, Braque was considered as such for a long time. And even at some stage, he was more of a national glory. We, we are talking of, of, along ethnic, ethnic lines. Picasso was the foreigner, and Braque was the French artist. And so in the 1930s, 1940s, Braque was more liked by than Picasso was, because he was the French artist representing French art, French culture, and so on. And that didn't last. What lasted was the fact that Picasso was always creative, always inventive, always uh, cutting edge. 
where Braque somehow settled in the French art in a style which was widely appreciated, widely acclaimed, but which was not as decisive as what Picasso was experimenting. NFT artists now, they have a huge, especially artists that sort of have quote unquote made it, meaning they have established some kind of reputation. They're under huge pressure to essentially maintain the pricing of their works. Yes. Meaning like, you know, their collectors have bought it from them for X and they're under major pressure to basically, you know, maintain the prices or increase, right? No, <laughs> nobody likes their prices sort of going down. And one way that they do this is basically to restrict the amount of work that they put out. People want to restrict supply in order to retain sort of pricing. And, and one of the counterbalances to that for artists is artists say, always point to Picasso, hey, like, we don't need to restrict supply because look at Picasso. He, he just released tons of stuff all the time and all his stuff is still worth money. And I wanted to, you know, get your opinion on that in the sense that did Picasso's pricing of his works suffer during his as he was producing all these works and only recovered after he sort of passed on and his reputation sort of grew? Or was that not a problem for him? And What struck me always is how astute Picasso was not only with his painting, but with his marketing. And he's not the, the only one. Claude Monet, who is such a big name as well and unquestionable, and was also a great marketer somehow of this. He knew how to manage and is... Uh, his production and manage is the expectation of the people who were collecting his works. Um, Picasso always kept control of his sales and it did produce a huge amount of works, but that it didn't it didn't put them on the market. When he died, when he passed away, there was a huge estate on, on which a very excellent family still lives. Uh, and this is uh, 50 years after he passed away. So it is very significant that there was this huge inventory which he kept for himself. And for example, Picasso would not sign a, a painting of his until it was actually sold. When it was given or when it was held on for in the estate, it was not signed. So he managed not only to be creative, he managed also his career tremendously well. And he knew how to play with a competition between uh, very com with various dealers. Uh, some of them had privileged access, but some others had a kind of partial access to him. And all of them, and not, not only um, dealers, but museums as well, he knew how to gift a painting there and sell a painting there. He was a genius at um, uh, marketing his works. And you cannot say that um, he produced indiscriminately. He did produce in a very sensi sensible and very controlled way. And this is what explains partly because, partially because in the end, he was a genius by and for, uh, for our sake. 
but he was also a genius uh, in marketing. And to some extent, I would say Warhol was also a good marketer of his work, even if, in my view, he was less astute and less and did um, didn't manage his career as well as Picasso did. So in the NFT space, there isn't this delineation between the various actors. So, you know, in traditional art space, you have collectors, you have sort of museums, galleries, art critics, everyone sort of plays their, their role. In the NFT space right now, there, there isn't really this delineation, right? So, you know, you have collectors who also, well, a lot of the major collectors are also artists and who sort of do their curation on, on, on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. I guess, which role do you think, you know, in, by your observation in the, in the traditional art space is the most critical in, in bringing, I, I guess, an artist to the, to the forefront of attention? Like, it's a very complex process and very interesting, of course. Very, very interesting. What I, I would see as uh, most important um, in terms of uh, valuation uh, of the work and um, consequences for, for the artist is our museums. But a show at the MoMA or at the Pompidou or at the Tate matters tremendously. So museums at the top of the pyramid, and the same for me when I when I see a show at the MoMA or a show at the Tate or a show at the Pompidou, I will listen. I will look into it. I will sometimes dismiss. Sometimes I will not. I make my own judgment. But of course, um, never will I uh, pass uh, or browse without um, you know considering what is offered to me or what is brought to my attention. Was this always this way in the traditional art world, like that the museums are at the top, or did this happen in a certain way? Because museums came to into being and playing that role quite recently. Uh, I would think, uh, you know, the MoMA in 1937, for example, 32, 1932, 1937, uh, started playing this role. And the Pompidou is only 50 years old or 60 years old. Uh, yes, so 45 years old. So the Pompidou was not, and the Tate is even younger. So the, the role of the museum started, uh, let's say, in, in probably in the 50s, 60s, when there was a big boom of the contemporary arts. There was a big boom of contemporary art in the 60s. The creation, there was a big boom of creation in the 50s, which brought a major, a very vibrant art market in the 60s. So that's how it worked. And then the museum come into play in, in those days, in, in the, uh, starting from the 60s, and much more clearly in the late, late uh, 30 years. So this is how it, it came, it, it happened. Before that, the role of galleries was extremely important. A lot of the top collectors are not people who collect, you know, one or two, right, uh, of, of a particular artist. Like <clears throat> sometimes they have like hundreds, basically, of a particular artist or, or collection, so to speak. And some of these people, I mean, publicly, they always say they're never going to sell, right? Never will sell. Right? Everyone publicly never says they will never sell. But sometimes, you know, people just have to sell, especially if, if someone, uh, a particular collector owns like a huge supply 
of a particular artist or a particular collection, how could they actually offload their or a part of, of the supply um, without crashing the market in the sense that in NFTs, it's very transparent, right? It's, it's not like, you know, you can anonymously sell something. Everyone knows where your wallet is. Everyone knows what you own. So if you start selling, it's a huge signaling issue, essentially. And, and so I think this is something that the NFT market hasn't actually come to much grips with because it's still very young. So there's not that many people sort of offloading. But in the cases where known collectors have offloaded, it, it's, it's a huge signaling sort of failure for the market. Everyone kind of realizes that they're selling. It kind of leads to other people trying to front down them to sell. And essentially, the price is a lot. Can you maybe give some examples of, of how this is done in the traditional art market? Uh, one uh, was the very famous episode from the uh, 2000, when was it? In the 2000s, when Charles Sachi unloaded his, his Kia, his central Kia's holding. And he did that very publicly, and he destroyed uh, Kia's career for a very long time. Kia is just, just now recovering from the stigma of that period. So Charles Sachi unloading the central cares was a disaster for the artist, which 10 years later is still being failed. On the contrary, uh, you do have a lot of collectors flipping works around in a quite discreet manner because the art market is to some extent very opaque. You can unload discreetly a lot of works without the whole market knowing that you are the one unloading. So uh, that allows for a far more discreet approach, which is contrary to the NFT, um, one of the weaknesses of this uh, uh, real art uh, market or traditional art market, as you, as, you, as you say. That's what happened with Damon Hurst when he sold in 2008. He sold 200 works. It was a genius movement, but it took him many years to recover from that because he unloaded 200 pieces at once, uh, made a lot of money with it. But for the next five to 10 years, he couldn't sell anything. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, I guess, identify, let's say, an unknown artist? Like what? What is your process in uh, in in doing that? And then how? One is kind of non-marketing discovery, mm-hmm. and I would um, think, for example, of uh, this artist which was exhibited by the MoMA, uh, Elma Afkins. So uh, she uh, lived in relative anonymity for most of her life, and then all of a sudden she's discovered, and she make she is. A very big name. All of a sudden, uh, uh, after um, after her, she she passed away. So that's one narrative where there is no marketing. There is really uh, a kind of uh, slow awareness progressing among the cognoscenti, among the connoisseurs, and then all of a sudden, everyone says, "Well, that's really fantastic, and and we should go for for it." Mm-hmm. So that's what happened with Hilma Afklint. Mm-hmm. And then there is the contrary. And the contrary is usually practiced by, a, you could say, a posse, a posse or a, a gang 
which is mostly located in New York, where a group of collectors, dealers, uh, curators work in team to discover the next hot thing, you know, build a big inventory on it, and then um, start showing it in various prestigious locations, see that the price at auction progress according to plan, and then unload slowly the inventory which was built at low costs in the first phase. And this is something which you can see again and again and again every three to six months. And this is something I'm, I'm, I'm a bit shocked with, but which takes place and everyone is running after that. You know, the connaissances start to gauge uh, on, on, on that name and then the slightly half circle and then wider, the wider circle gets to rush at um, very different prices onto that specific name. And this is um, something which uh, um, I think is uh, very uh, unhealthy, but which takes place every other month or every uh, in, in the contemporary art market. And something which I, I quite dislike, I must say, I must confess. You're talking about a classic sort of pump and dump, uh, essentially. <laughs> does the price kind of, basically does everyone move on well, it can be both ways. It can be uh, those those people who are playing this game are highly sophisticated and they know when they see a good artist. That's one thing which you can, um, which I gladly recognize to them. And I think it's it's really one of the qualities and asset being able to tell a good picture from another. But at the same time, they are playing a kind of marketing thing. And if uh, an artist is good enough to make the trick for um, the next six months or next year or two. That's good enough, and let's let's go um, along along. Uh, let's uh, play that that uh, that game, and I think this is the case in most in most cases because there is not a Picasso every three, three months, to my knowledge. Uh, a new Picasso every three months. So they have to play with lesser quality, lesser standing, lesser uh, uh, strength, because they have to keep the, the game uh, going, you know, the, the ball rolling. Is this punished by the market? Or when I say market, I mean the, the broader collective base who are buying these things? Or... You know, is it very quickly forgotten, and then you know th these games can be played indefinitely? Well, a little bit of all of the answers, I would right. say. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, some slowly uh, go back into anonymity. Some artists are destroyed by the sudden fame and rise and fall of their careers. That's uh, the case for a number of them. And some will go through lulls and recover and create new things. And um, whom should I mention? But uh, you may say uh, Schnabel, for example, who was a big name and a star and who disappeared from the radars and who was um, strong enough to withstand this and re-emerge later. So um, there are different tra trajectories. But 
Uh, one, one thing is certain, it's very often quite destructive to begin with. So is wood, is the aim of, I guess, the, the more experienced collectors to try to avoid participating in these things? Or is there incentives for collectors to also participate because they can also benefit financially uh, from this? Because, uh, I mean, harking back to the NFT example, like collectors are, are kind of, Basically, it's one of these things where where there's a lot of times everyone recognizes like it's a pump and dump, but people participate in it because they always think they can get out before the dump. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, uh, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show. I, I've actually got way more questions I want to ask, but we'll probably save it for 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 another day. But uh, thank <laughs> thank you for for coming onto the show. Yes, I must say it was uh, very enjoyable to to share with you guys. Uh, really, it was totally uh, uh, rather new for me and unexpected. But I must say I really enjoyed our talk, and I look very much forward uh, hearing from you again. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor Is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising. <laughs>